Thanks for tuning in. This is Offshore Explorer with Scott Dodgson. Today I'm talking about a kind of event that takes place and we all sometimes learn about it. Uh, we, we, we see it. Um, rarely do we get to participate in the event. Um, it takes a great deal of commitment to do that. So there's a, a couple of things that I'm massaging around this, and it's it's all oriented towards um, a place called Coral Bay, which is in St. John, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And the title of this is as Bohemian Sailors. And for a very uh, small moment in time. Coral Bay was the home of sailors who were visionaries and hippies and drug smugglers. But foremost, they were brilliant sailors. And I have never come across a group of sailors with this level of mad skills. Unless, of course, I was around like America's Cup or the Whitbread slash Volvo race. There are a few places in the world where time circumstances create a legendary moment. You might think of like Hemingway in Paris with Gertrude Stein and, and Picasso and all the other writers, you know, working with the movable feast. Maybe you think about it in terms of the 80s, being in um, the village in New York City and, and the punk scene, you know, or Phuket, the beach culture, the action, the interesting stuff that happened in Phuket, and still, to a certain degree, does, but there was a moment, a moment in which the people that were involved had a higher purpose or discovered a higher purpose when they arrived rather than just being a bunch of crazy people looking for whatever. Um, they found a certain commonality sort of group um, commitment and they took took that you might think that this piece of time is rare um, because most of us just read about it and I mean it happens a lot it happens in a variety of different places it just doesn't reach the scale of of a notoriety you know Woodstock uh, was a happening uh, for the people that sort of traveled through the whole Haight-Ashbury, Monterey Jazz Festival, you know, Vietnam War protests, rock and roll, Earth Day, the civil rights revolution and movement, and then sort of out the other side of all of that, um, opting for a, a different life, a different way of life, a life of truth and peace far away from mass commercialism and and suburbs and two cars and gray suits and the grind of modern life life in quotes because it's it's a life less desired because a certain amount of submissiveness is to is required but there are those few souls which we find essentially in the cruising and yachting community that opt to get away from it. And these few bro brave souls uh, found a place 
um, in Coral Bay. I was there. I was lucky enough to be there and be a part of this little recognized but profoundly interesting and moving and important moment, brief moment. And it happened. It lasted for a few years. It was full of being cool. It was cool. It was noble. It was honest of purpose. And for a brief moment, these principles all existed in in one sort of interesting place. And I always refer to it as, you know, if you've ever asked yourself, um, and might, you might have to be of a certain age to realize this, that whatever happened to the hippies? Well, this continuum of whatever happened to hippies with uh, free love and LSD and smoking pot and all the rest of this kind of stuff, it, it existed. Uh, these people went on. In fact, um, one of the in in Los Angeles, one of the the biggest real estate developers in this in this uh, in this neighborhood in Los Angeles in general, um, it was a hippie. He owned a boat. Um, he was he had a girlfriend. He was ninety two years old when he died, and his his girlfriend was like twenty six. It was crazy, but he was a cool guy. I mean, but he was he came from that whole. You know, he went from being a hippie to to being a sauna tube, you know, bath guy to, you know, owning a big yacht and made millions and millions of dollars, but sort of kept the same attitude of what? Freedom, free love, um, open mind, exploration. And this sort of, this group uh, I found was uh, uh, sort of gravitated towards Coral Bay. Um, they lasted a few years. I was involved with them, not so much in the middle of it, but sort of um, on the outside of it with maybe one foot in. So it gave me a kind of perspective. So one thing you can be sure of, things change. And Coral Bay is no different than any other uh, bay, except the change had come a little bit slower than most. Um Coral Bay, for those who are not familiar with it, is located on the eastern end of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It is more a protected anchorage than a port. Um, in a, there's a network um, to the east of the village of Coral Bay, and um, it's sort almost 360 degrees um, surrounded as a kind of hurricane hole. It's a brilliant place for hurricane. I've spent some time there during hurricanes. Um, and it's protected from the ocean. Um, the low slung, there's low slung hills that sort of protect also from the winds. And if the wind comes from the north, the, the mountains in the north help protect the uh, hurricane hole. So it is, without a doubt, like the best place um, to take cover when storms come. And it's, you know, it's, it's deep enough um, that you're not going to get too much in terms of like waves. Um, and it's just everything is sort of blocked off. You, gotta, you come into a couple of little areas where you have to, you know, you have to turn to port um, and go along a little bit. Then you have to, it's like going up a river, but it's not, uh, you know, then you have to 
go to starboard and then you go for a little bit and then you have to go to port so there's this sort of you know it's almost it's it's almost a natural harbor in that regard but there's many there's a few really small places so that you can um you know tuck your boat in there and be relatively safe uh from hurricanes that come and i mean coral bay got hit pretty bad in the in their last kind of devastating hurricane um that hit the virgin islands and in puerto rico and we all sort of know that kind of stupidness um the church lost its roof a few boats sunk in the bay um that bay is um not protected um normal winds it is uh anything it's open to the south and of course uh you know, you have to deal with, uh, you know, a good 360 degrees of wind um, over time as a hurricane comes. So Coral Bay um, is is really, uh, it's, it's sort of open to the south. It's, it's somewhat protected, um, but it's no place to be sitting when hurricane comes. Um, I had Coral Bay painted as uh, on the stern of my boat uh, for about 20 years as my home port. Um, I owned a mooring there, right in the center of the bay, which I actually traded for boat supplies because I knew I wasn't going to spend really any time on the mooring whatsoever. And and I sold it to, um, I traded it with Trudy, who owned a, a little ship store and a sail loft. And she and her husband, Brian, uh, lived aboard a, a home-built 30-foot sailboat with their son, Mikey, who was a nearly feral island boy. I mentioned this family because I would like to talk about these people that were sort of didn't find or found. They found in, in words like, oh, there's, there's, this is a discovery for them. Um, but they were a little bit like pioneers um, because the place had no there was one dirt road that ran from Cruise Bay which is the only town which is on the other end of the island and the only real way of getting there is it was by by taking a boat and sailing into the harbor otherwise there was a church there which um it was sort of a, the church was um go back go back So, so I, I mentioned them because Trudy um, turned out to be uh, one of the true um, leaders of this little group of like-minded men, women, and families. And they all came from different places. They didn't know each other before they got there. But they ended up finding this little out-of-the-way paradise and building a life and a community more along the lines of a commune. And their commonality was the fact that they were all sailors. They were all cruisers. They were all looking for something out there. And this is a very big part of our sailing community. So it was like up until the 70s, it was so remote. 
I mean, it is America, but it is so remote because it's mostly national park. Um, it's the administrative town is Cruz Bay, there's, which has its only ferry dock there. The Rockefellers owned a resort on the uh, northwestern end of St. John called Kinneal Bay. And that was a very famous place for rich people to go and, and vacation. And um, it got destroyed in, in Irma, the hurricane. Um, and what the Rockefellers didn't know was all nation, national law park. And the administrator of uh, St. John was usually appointed by um, the president of the United States. And um, they basically just didn't pay attention to it because there wasn't much there. Um, and I say there wasn't much there. There were roughly about 1,000 people on the island um, in the 210 census. Um and there were there was about forty seven hundred people somewhere in that neighborhood um, just prior to Hurricane Irma, and that number fluctuates quite a bit um, because about seventy percent of the residents left after that last hurricane because there was nothing; it destroyed everything. But the little village of Coral Bay seemed to you know lose the roof to the church. A couple of things got knocked down. A few boats got sunk. Um, those boats shouldn't have even been there. So I suspect uh, they didn't want to keep the boats in the first place. Um, but the concentration of residents was sort of in and around Cruise Bay, some fishermen. And and to get from, Coral, from Cruise Bay to Coral Bay requires like a four-hour drive on dirt roads. This is before. And... What's kind of interesting is, is during the late 60s, early 70s, there was this group of people. As I said, they, they sort of went through the whole Woodstock thing. They were hippies. They were young adventurers. They were, um, they, you know, they had, some had skills, um, but they all sort of were, they all were sailors. And, and they were part of a very small, during that period, liveaboard community. There weren't a lot of Liverpool. And I might mention um, about the Liverpool communities. I mean, there were people living on boats. Don't get me wrong. But the, the number of people that started to live on boats is pretty much conducive to the number of and the size of the boats. Um, a lot of boats like Catalina's and, and large production boats um, began to populate marinas, and they were actually wonderfully comfortable to to uh, live aboard and sail. But a lot of these people, um, kind of coming out of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, they were hippies, the young people. They were sailors, which this story is important for. And and they they decided to go cruising. And it was uh, it was a good thing. So the word went out, and um, a lot of people from the East Coast of the, of the United States, from Boston all the way down, made the trek um, to get away from the man, you know, to smoke what you want, to build a good life with a communal narrative, um, which was uh, for the good of all. Um, 
And, and so the word went out, and a few sailors with this pioneering spirit that wanted to chuck being in America um, and doing the grind uh, found their way to Coral Bay. At the time, the village had maybe 30, 40 residents. Um, this is in 1970. Um, and they had the Moravian Church. Now, the Moravian Church is an important um, foundation and key to this. The Moravian Church, or what they call the Moravian Brethren, um, where they came from uh, Germany. Um, they called them the Unity of Brethren. Um, and it was a place for the church's quote-unquote renewal in the 18th century. It is the oldest Protestant dominate, uh, denomination in the world, and it dates back to the Bohemian Reformation of the 15th century. So they had to escape in 1722 from Saxony and from Moravia, uh, where you get the name of Moravian Church, and um, to escape the religious uh, persecution, uh, which began, by the way, in 1457. Little facts, factoids today. Um, and they 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 went off and and they created their own kingdom in Silesia. Um, there was about a million members worldwide, and they continued to do this all the way through the 18th century. And one of their key things was to do missionary work. And so they came to the Caribbean um, very early in the 16th century. And um, they, they loved music. Um, there was a great deal of personal piety. And um, the church was uh, a, um, a wholesome, wonderful place. And they were there to spread the word of God among the residents who were mostly um, Afro um, slaves. Um, although the Dutch had given up slavery, even though they started, almost started it, um, in uh, St. John and very early in the 16th century, 17th century. And um, so the island had a few... Afro slaves that were transplanted there, and they were there for, of course, creating, they had their own freedoms and their own individual thing, and they lived in this very harsh environment, by the way. And this is, uh, the church was there, and the church itself is not run by white German, Germans or Moravians or whatever. It's mostly a, um, a uh, black church at this point. So life on the island is really hard. Um, and of course, we all know that cruising without resources is even harder. Coral Bay was exceptionally hard because every bit of food, other than some chickens that laid eggs, and much of the water um, that wasn't gathered in cisterns had to be imported into the village. So if you needed a part for your boat, um, you had to go to St. Thomas, um, where in for the most part, they would order it for you to be shipped out of Florida, and it took months of the supply chain to actually reach you. You had to kind of get food from uh, from St. Thomas. Uh, they did have, there's a lot more people, obviously, on that island than there was on uh, uh, St. John. So there was a lot of um, 
going back and forth, or they could say you could sail to Cruise Bay, drop your hook, um, and take the ferry over into uh, Charlotte or Malé, go do your shopping, come back on a ferry, get back on your boat, sail three hours around to Coral Bay, and then offload your boat because there's no. They used to just, there's a dock there now, but there was just nothing but a concrete slab that just sort of stuck out a little bit into the bay in about a foot and a half of water. Enough for a dinghy, but certainly not enough for a a boat. There was no electricity. Um, There was actually a payphone on the end of the road at the end of the village, which was a big deal. Um... And the first structure that people built um, was built by Red. And Red was a Boston Beaner, construction hippie, with a big flowing red beard, um, wonderful personality, and a big-time sailor. And he had sailed down and decided that he was going to stake his claim on this land. And... The community of sailors at this point was, um, and we're talking about mid-70s right now, was about 15 boats and roughly about 35 people. And they all pitched in in a communal way. And, and most of them didn't know each other. They just, this was an attitude that they had. This was a dream that they all shared coming from different places. But it was a result of what the hippie movement and free love and all the rest of this came from. So they all sailed down here. There were about 15 boats, roughly 35 people. They pitched in, they built Reds, um, and it would serve as a meeting place and restaurant. There were a few other buildings that went up, um, but basically everybody lived on their boat. They were anchored in the bay. They would take their dinghies back and forth um, to land, um, and you could sit, literally sit, in the corner of Red's bar and uh, smoke a joint, and nobody was going to hassle you. Um, The local police looked the other way, and in fact, when um, they were off duty, they partook in the Garden of Eden Herb, Um, and families began to grow. At one point, there were births almost every week for like months. So the community was becoming self-sufficient, and and. However, there remained like a problem, still getting goods and and how the community could make money. Uh, Tourism uh, was a bit, you know, there was tourism, but it was a bit unheard of. The tourists would go to Keneal Bay, um, which was the only resort in town. They, They wouldn't tolerate riding on a dirt road up and down the mountain, um, fondly known as the Central Road, um, all the way out to Cruise Bay, because there was no place to stay. There was a restaurant, but there was no place to stay. And the other thing, too, was is that the charter business in general, the sailing business, was just beginning to grow. And there were a lot of things going on, but Coral Bay was sort of off the beaten track. It wasn't on the itinerary. Because there was so much more in entertainment um, outside of Coral Bay. And what it was, was people would be picked up um, in the Virgin Islands, which had the only international airport, and get on the boat in Charlotte Amalai, the sailboat, whatever they were chartering, and then they would come and they would go on the north side of St. John into the British Virgin Islands. From Coral Bay to the British Virgin Islands is only four miles. 
So it's right there. Norman Island, you could literally, I don't think you could swim it, but some somebody probably could. Um, it's not very far away because that's where the dividing line is at, at the very, very eastern end of St. John. And in fact, I think you could argue at one time Coral Bay was the easternmost occupied village in America. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that everybody sort of skipped St. John. And they wanted to get into the, the more sheltered part of the British Virgin Islands. Uh, they sailed up the Sir Francis Drake Passage, zigzagging from Norman Island to Tortola, to Yost Van Dyke, to Peter Island, to Virgin Gorda, and then back down through the slot with the wind behind you to St. Thomas. And that was pretty much everybody's um, program. So essentially, the pioneers, as I'll call them, of Coral Bay, they got their wish for isolation and they were willing to put up with the hassles of uh, getting food, etc. Um, a couple of people had, you know, number of chickens and it was real, real hard pioneering kind of life. Then two specific events occurred. The Corps of Engineers paved a road from Cruise Bay to Coral Bay. And the war on drugs began in earnest with the establishment of the DEA. And up until that time, the war on drugs was just another stupid excuse to fight communism. Uh, the road was built by the army, um, originally the dirt road. Um, it was, it was, it was, they put it out so they could get to the eastern end of the island um, where they could uh, observe as a lookout point for German submarines during World War II. But then it was paved, and um, this sort of was a, a job that they had wanted to do for a long time and finally got around to doing it. But it was basically approved and paved for the Navy because the Navy wanted to build a radar station at the end of the island for drug interdiction. The commune of Coral Bay ended up um, getting a really good deal on this 75-foot uh, island freighter. Um, at first they got to lease it, um, and then they ended up buying it, and it was, it was, it was a piece of shit, um, to be honest. I was always amazed that it was running. It was a full-time job to keep it running, um, it should have been scrapped, um, but it, you know, it ran. And they used to run this thing from, um, and I, I went on one of these runs with them. They would run uh, the freighter to Miami. That's a distance of about 1,100 nautical miles. They would load up on refrigerated goods. Now, the way they did that is they had room on the deck for a... Um, container. So they had actually managed to, I will not say steal a refrigerated container, but let's say a refrigerated container that, that was deliberately missing. And so they would load up with all the freezer goods, you know, that you could put in there, but they, they were bringing lumber and concrete and plumbing supplies, booze, diapers, baby formula, 
because there were little babies. Every, everybody had a little baby, it seemed. And anything that people needed, this is what they they would bring. And, and you would make out your list and say, yeah, I need this or I need this boat part. You, you knew. And I would want to get this and I want to get that. And, and you would just fill out. There would be a big list you would fill out. It was in reds. It was on a board and you'd fill it out. And then these these guys would, you would put your money down and they they would go shopping for you in Miami. And then it, they would do it about once a month or once every other month. Because it, it was a trip. But they also had this other thing going on. Because on the way to Miami, when they were empty, they would carry pot and later Coke. And life was good, really good, until it wasn't. They were boarded several times, but as luck would have it, they were being boarded after leaving Miami. Because at this time, the Coast Guard really didn't know what they were doing. And I don't have much faith, to be perfectly honest, in the lifeguard sailing skills, tactically especially. Now, this wasn't blind luck. The freighter wasn't really fast by any means, but it was fast enough that it could glide literally underneath the lee of a cruise ship until it got into port. And this was great because it would create a shadow and it could hide in the shadow. And the guys on the ship, on the freighter, um, uh, the guys on the freighter understood how the Coast Guard worked. They would put up radar um, zones that were static. So all you had to do is just, you know, go on, you know, just hide behind a, a, a cruise ship and, and just because there's tons going into Miami. Um, and you can make the last 20 miles or so completely undetected. And even if you had been followed, um, the chances are that you wouldn't get boarded especially going into getting into Miami because you would just be a part of this huge traffic. And this time at this time, they weren't really very aggressive. They became aggressive, but they really weren't aggressive. So the little community, the little commune had this little side business going. So they would deliver pot or Coke, um, to Miami. Um, then they would bring back all their supplies and they ended up making actually quite, a bit of money. Um, but the big question from a sailor's point of view is how did the eastern end of St. John, how did they get all the coke and pot in the first place? Well, a lot of that was a long and elaborate series of handoffs and ruses. The Coast Guard and the Navy waited outside Columbia with their radar, and all the vessels that these guys were sailing our pioneers, our sailing bohemians, um, were wood. They had wood masts. There wasn't a single... If you, if you didn't know better, you would go there and you go, wow, what a lovely place. Look at all the wooden boats. These are like classic antiques. And, and actually, if there's a few of them that won in their classes at Antigua Race Week and other races because they were, they were, be they were beautiful wood boats. And these wood boats just don't show up on radar very well. But they did another trick. They would come out of Columbia loaded 
And in some cases, these boats could carry up to a ton. Some cases, there was two boats that I know of. My boat is specifically could carry two tons, and which is a lot of money, especially a ton of coke is a lot. And what they would do is they would island hop. So they would go into a bay, say they'd sail up to, say, the Grenadines. They'd hop into a bay, okay, and they'd offload it onto another boat. So if that boat was being followed that came out of Columbia, they would turn and they would go away. They would just go on a sail. And then the actual pot would be on a different boat, and it would go up to um, another place, like, say, Guadalupe. They would go into Guadalupe, lots of places to hide in Guadalupe, offload it to another boat, and then that boat would sail it up. So this sort of handoff of, a, of, of stuff and different boats, I don't think the Coast Guard ever figured any of that out. So they did actually slow the um, transfer of drugs from Colombia, uh, mostly because of the airplane. And the cartels used a lot of airplanes. That was their central um, uh, vehicle. But these sailboats were a very reliable, um, very reliable source of, of movement and transportation. And there's about a million stories I could tell you about all of how they got over. But there's just one thing I wanted to say is, is all the stuff about the DEA and the Navy and the Coast Guard talking about all their drug introduction. It's so much bullshit because so much of this stuff just went past them. They never even knew. Um, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. They have great, some great stories and they got some, some big catches, but it's nowhere near what the actual volume of drugs that were coming out of these places. It was insane. They were getting a small percentage and the whole war on drugs was just a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to do. And of course, all the, of course, all the people that got arrested for having pot or smoking pot. Yeah, this was, this was, um, this was a stupid time, um, punitive time, for for people who wanted to have their own freedoms. But our pioneers in in Coral Bay were just basic. They were very mellow people, and they were not prone to violence. They weren't haters. They weren't bigots. They were cool. They were mostly about family and freedom, wanting to raise the kids the way they wanted to, homeschooling them. You know, there's a whole subset for that. And then once the business started to become more dangerous and more demanding, um, the group had to formulate another plan. Now, when I talk about these moments in time, uh, this is where the moment in time is unraveling and and becomes something else. Red was one of the leaders, obviously, of this group. And he was a particular genius uh, when it came to, you know, visionary kind of stuff. He had this vision of Coral Bay and and what to do, and, and he was a natural leader, and, and, and he was, you know, he figured it out, okay? And, and, but he was often in conflict with Trudy. So during a meeting over beers and rum, a lot of rum, I might add, Trudy and Red went at it. 
Trudy didn't want her husband smuggling drugs. Now, Brian was a brilliant sailor and a major pothead. Um, he, he was quick with a smile. Um, his, he would smile and his little mustache would go up. When you first met him, you say, yeah, this is a really nice guy. I bet he has something to say. And then he would just disappear before your eyes, like as if the lights were on a dimmer switch, and he would just disappear. And I never quite understood the relationship between Trudy, because Trudy was like fire, and she was industrious, and she had vision, and she wanted to build something with purpose and meaning, and she wanted to keep it strict. You know, she she was like the Moravians. She had she was a very deeply religious woman, and she believed in this little kingdom, and they had that they, 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 they she believed in this little kingdom they had built. And she wanted to get into the real estate business to sort of supplant the drug business and the tourist business and because that was going to be a slow grow, and she knew it. These are really smart people. And she was ready to kind of get off the boat, but she was going to build some boats. So they got this idea that they were going to build catamarans, uh, which is a, is, a, is a nice boat to build. But basically, it was a side business to keep Brian occupied since uh, she wasn't going to allow him to go racing around the Caribbean dodging the authorities with pot on his boat. Red wanted to keep the paradise just the way it was. He had settled. His bar and restaurant had gained some fame. Business was good. He didn't need any more money than that. Actually, Red had money. Um, He could hang out with his buddies all day. Um, Red had, as he said, built enough. He had been in the rat race of building houses and selling them up in Boston. And he didn't want to uh, bring that misery to this little paradise that he had going. And, you know, he 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 just made a really adamant and beautiful plea for trying to keep the paradise the way it was. And then Trudy exploded, and the next thing you know, there were some heated words, and the beach dogs ran for cover, and the babies cried. And at this moment, this experiment of free living, free love, common good, great sailing, all disappeared. Trudy stayed in Coral Bay for a few more years, developing her own boat business and real estate business, and she was quite successful. Brian disappeared. Mikey, the feral island youth, actually went to school, college, and then to law school. Red sold his restaurant and sailed to Costa Rica where he set up an environmentally sensitive resort. Um, This was his new thing, was the environment. And as for the others, they sort of scattered into the wind. Many of them went back to the mainland and got jobs for the man. But Coral Bay was slowly growing into what you might expect. There were houses, there were villas, there were restaurants, the touristy stuff all around. And all of this was, there was a vibe, you know, like this is a little out-of-the-way hippie place you know, roots in free love, roots in freedom, uh, roots in sailing, and it's sort of a 
that that's the touchstone for the memorabilia although they really play they don't play it up in any part but if you're there and you know and you know some people and you've heard the stories you know that for one brief moment in history of this little remote corner of the island a little remote corner of america there was some freedom in every sense in love in all the senses Thank you. I want to thank you all for listening. Um, the music, the opening music is uh, by uh, Paulette McWilliams. Uh, the beautiful Paulette McWilliams. You can find her newest album, A Woman's Story, um, wherever you get your music. Uh, it is a brilliant album. Um, it's just a long history and... Uh, she is, uh, of course, my mate, and um, she's going on tour in Europe at the end of uh, July, finally getting out of the COVID stuff. But anyway, uh, it's Paulette McWilliams' uh, A Woman's Story. also like to thank uh, all of you who have liked and um, left comments, uh, especially if you're listening to us on Apple. Um, we would appreciate uh, a rating and a comment. If there's any other comments you'd like to make, uh, p- please feel free to just send me a message and I'd be happy to uh, answer them. Um, I appreciate everybody. Uh, we will be not broadcasting uh, next week. Um, we've got the 4th of July weekend coming up and I am going to be doing some filming and sailing at the same time. So I'll be a pretty occupied as far as that's concerned but we'll see you after that the next week and we'll be rolling all through the summer and um, i hope you have a good time i hope you have calm seas great winds and you enjoy your boat as much as you possibly can thank you and safe seas